Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. I've really wrestled with what I wanted to share with you this morning. You know, one of the reasons I like to just preach through a book of the Bible, I don't have to think about what I'm going to be speaking on. You know, it's the next passage. And so that really ends a lot of consternation within. But I'm not doing that in these recent weeks. So I couldn't say, well, this is where we are, so that's what we'll speak on. But there are two things that are very much in the forefront of my mind. One is, what is transpiring here at Beth Ariel? How can it not be in the forefront of my mind? But I don't want to talk about that this morning. I don't want to preach on any element that might be relevant to the transition we're going through, to the new leadership additions that God has been impressing upon me for a while and now has come to fruition, with regard to the opportunity as well as challenge that is before us. But after our service this morning, we'll talk about some of those things. But what is also on the forefront of my mind, and I must say, perhaps even more significantly than as important as all that is, it's what's happening with our brothers and sisters overseas. I am just really touched, stirred, disturbed by all that we are reading. And I want to share with you some of my thoughts regarding that, because it touches on us here to some degree as well. One of the reasons I want to speak to this subject is I kept thinking in my mind how often I had taught on the Holocaust. As a teacher back east, I was given so much latitude in my class. I taught the Hebrew Scriptures. I had the whole year to get them through the, uh, the uh, 66 books or so of the Hebrew Scriptures to whatever degree I wanted to go. There was no, you have to get here or get here. I could spend as much time in any one of those areas as I wanted to, for the most part. They wanted me to get through something. I couldn't spend all my time, for example, in Genesis 1, as much as I might have liked to do that. But I didn't have to go through every portion and every chapter. And what was really neat was that those that I was accountable to had said to me, you know, with the Jewish holidays, they would give me all the latitude to teach about them. And when it came time to think about the Holocaust, especially during the Holocaust Remembrance Day, Yom HaShoah, I said, take the time and definitely teach our kids about that. 
I actually, I think one year, I don't know if I did this every year, but one year I was able to spend an entire month just focusing on the Holocaust. And while focusing on the Holocaust, I'd had opportunity to bring my students every year to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. One year, interestingly enough, I was watching C-SPAN, and I forget the man's name, senator from South Carolina at the time, who had presented a bill that was relevant to the Holocaust. I can't remember exactly what the bill was, but it was relevant to it. And I wrote him. And I heard the bill presented, so I wrote him and I said, you know, I bring my kids to the, my students to the Holocaust Museum. Is there any way that we could arrange to meet with you so you could share with them why you were so moved to present this bill? He said, absolutely. So one day, one such trip, we went to the museum and then after that we headed over to the Senate building. He met us on the street, on the steps of the Senate, had us, you know, sort of sit down there and then he just shared with us his heart about the Holocaust. And then he took a photo with us. <laughs> you know, I guess all senators do that. And when we were at the museum, one of the floors is just filled with videos. And depending on how much time you have, one of the sections is on how the American press handled the Holocaust. And in the very early stages, like 1932, 33, when the Nuremberg Laws were being developed and then later enforced, you would see things about the Holocaust, small uh, articles on the first couple of pages, not often on the first page, but second or third, and as time would go on, it would be relegated more and more to the back pages of uh, the newspapers. And so that impressed itself upon me, obviously, I'm sharing that with you. And my concern is that I don't want the suffering of other believers such as in Iraq or in India or in Africa or in other places to get relegated to the back pages of our minds. And I feel like what would I have done in the pulpit of the congregation I was in in the 1930s? To what degree would I have been focusing attention and speaking to this matter that was permeating Europe and devastating the world. And so now I think of the hundreds of thousands of believers in Iraq that have been murdered. I had read that in the 1990s there were 1.2 million Christians in Iraq. Now there are tens of thousands. We all saw what some of our family members in, other, in this part of the world have been treated. We've read of, heard of the beheadings. That's grisly enough, isn't it? We've read of the women, the wives, in front of their husbands being sold into slavery and then being executed. We've seen forced conversions or exile from homes. Some cities that were entirely made up of Christians are now emptied of any. Churches that had flourished, some for thousands of years, have been turned 
into mosques. We saw all these uh, exiles, refugees, headed up to Mount Sinjar. I was reading about that, and did you know that the temperatures up there were 115 degrees? And there's no shelter, there's no trees up there. So people were just stuck, running for their lives. Many dying along the way by the pursuit of these Muslim terrorists, as well as dying from exposure, or lack of food, water. It's wonderful the United States has stepped in. Of course, our question is, why so late? These things have been sort of rumbling for years now. It's interesting to me because one of the very first, one of the very first displays and one of the first outrages expressed by the United States with regard to those in Darfur, those believers that were being persecuted by the um, Muslim extremists in uh, the Sudan. One of the first voices that was heard was from Jewish people, Jewish leaders. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum was one of the first voices regarding the carnage that was happening in Africa. So I'm really stirred by this. I'm really disturbed by it. And I know it's really far away. And I know what's going on in Gaza with Israel. And certainly we can't forget that either. But then when I think of these individuals, many of whom, not all perhaps, certainly, I, I guess, but many of whom are genuine believers of, in the Lord along with us. And the scripture is quite clear about our responsibility to our brothers and sisters, wherever they might be. And however they might be suffering. So this passage, and I ask you to turn, and, and I want to talk about suffering. I want to talk about pain. I want to talk about challenges. We all have it on some level, but some people have it on a level that is unbelievable. And is on a level that I just can't begin to fathom. And it's not what happened 60 years ago in Nazi Germany. It's happening now in a Nazified area in the Middle East. They don't call themselves Nazis, but they certainly are. And therefore, we need to raise our voices and perhaps do more than raise our voices. What? I'm not sure I know. But somehow we've got to get on board and get involved and get connected. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes these words that have, stir that have stirred me. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Well, that's like a lifetime right there. Be self-controlled and alert. Be wise. Be uh, focused. Be thinking. Be reflecting. Be mindful. Because your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lying, lion looking for someone to devour, seeking to devour whomsoever he might desire to harm. That imagery of lions roaring. You know, in Psalm 22, it speaks about the bulls of Bashan circled around Messiah. That's the imagery. Bulls with their horns pointed at Messiah, the suffering servant. And then he says they are like lions ready to pounce and destroy. Hello. They are 
like, he says, wild dogs. You know, those of us here in Southern California, and just I think it was last night, sometimes I get middle of the night, you hear these howlings and you hear these, these shriekings. You probably hear them pretty good, Bob, where you are. And you know the coyotes have nailed their prey. And in Psalm 22, it says, like wild dogs, it says, they pierce my hands and my feet. The evil one is like a lion. And when he so appears like a lion, he oftentimes is extremely destructive and wages what cannot be described as anything less than war on the saints. In fact, if you want to turn with me, this is exactly what John writes in Revelation chapter 12. Because in Revelation chapter 12, we read that there was war in heaven. War is characteristic of the evil one. And in Revelation 12, went too far, it says that Michael and his angels went to battle with the dragon and his angels. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. And the evil one was cast out. When cast out, in verse 13, it says, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, that is, of course, Israel, who had given birth to the Messiah, the male child. But take a look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. So the evil one's character trait among many is that of waging war against the saints, war against the Messiah. Certainly, he came to Messiah and said, if you are the Son of God, turn the stones to bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down that the angels may cast you up. If you are the Messiah and you bow and worship me, I'll show you all the kingdoms of the world. He comes against the saints of God, particularly, though not exclusively, to wage war, to maim, and to destroy and to harm. And when you read 1 Peter back to that passage, look at this. He says, resist him standing firm in the faith. This is what struck me. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Oh my goodness. I mean, I can understand the Iraqi believers reading this. But the kind of suffering they are enduring is nothing like any kind of challenges, hardships I might face here in the United States. That's not to say my hardships aren't real, but they're certainly very different than the hardships that I'm reading about individuals enduring in the Middle East. And so when I look at these passages and I think about suffering, you know, suffering is the normal lot of the world, but it's the normal lot of believers. It was George MacDonald, he wrote in like the 1860s, I think it was, the same time around the time of Charles Dickens. He was a believer. His writings were critical in leading C.S. Lewis to faith. One of his sermons, he said that Messiah suffered 
not so that our suffering would be taken for us, from us, but that our suffering might be like his. He endured suffering, not so that our suffering would be removed, but that when we suffer, we would be encouraged to suffer like him. When you look at the book of Acts and you take a glimpse into the life of an individual like Paul, Rav Shaul, perhaps the greatest teacher of God's word and certainly of Messiah's revelation, when he was led to faith, brought to faith, when God saved him on the road to Damascus and Messiah appeared to him, the Lord then spoke to Ananias and told Ananias, who was in Damascus, that Rav Shaul, the persecutor of the body of Messiah, the one whom Messiah said, why do you persecute me? Ananias was told by God. This is what he was told in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Goyim, the Gentiles, and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul, who is the theological expositor of God's truth par excellence, was called to suffer. And when you read through his letters, principally the book of Romans and Corinthians, not once or twice, but six times, Paul catalogs for us the sufferings he endured. And some of those sufferings are incredible to think about. He said not once or twice, but five times. Five times he received from the religious leadership of his day, flogging, which he said was the 40 lashes minus one. Five times. He was whipped 39 times. I can't even imagine once, one time. And here five times, 39 times. He says in that passage, not only was he flogged like that, but three times he was beaten. One time we know he was beaten to the point where they thought they killed him and they left him lying on the road. He said three times he had been shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. Now I'm a sailor and I've sailed since 1995-ish or so. I've never been shipwrecked once. I've been in some incredible storms and it got pretty hairy and pretty scary. So much so that one of the guys that was on our 24-footer that hit a terrible storm as we were heading out to South, North South Carolina and we were in the Chesapeake Bay, it was so bad that we had finally anchored in the bay in an area you're not supposed to anchor, but it was so terrible we had to just stabilize ourselves. My good buddy Brian was down below. He wasn't being pummeled by the wind and the rain and the lightning that was all around us. 
He was just telling us, go right, go right. No, come left. You know, he was like our navigator. So he's down there nice and dry telling us where we're supposed to go. And he's yelling at us because the noise was so loud and the, and the rustling through the sail and all the, tr- and all the, uh, the lines and everything. And me and this one other fellow, this is the first time he's out with us. We're sitting in the cockpit just keeping our, the boat on course. Finally, we get to a place, we anchor. We spent the night and we're just being, you know, just blown all over the place. Next morning we get up, it's still raining. And he said, bring me to shore, I'm going. I don't want any more of this. I said, sorry, but, you know, once you're on, you're on for the ride. Yeah. Fortunately, things got a little clearer and we had a great sail. But on that occasion, it was pretty intense. But we didn't get shipwrecked. I don't know what it would be like to be out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea where there's no sight of land and holding on to boards in order to stay afloat. But Paul experienced that. And you could read of all the other things that he had endured. And then you read in the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, he says, And I've learned to be content. And this is how we used to read it back in New Jersey with, uh, I don't know if it was King James or New International. But we, used to say, he, we would read it, but Paul says, But I learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. So in Jersey, we used to say, well, that would mean even like Mississippi. You know, Louisiana, is that true? How could we do that, you know? California, okay, but Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma, yikes. Sorry. But that's not what Paul means, right? He means no matter what our circumstances are. But what's neat about that verse? Paul had to learn it. It wasn't like he was one of these rustic guys that could head out up to the tundra, you know, in Alaska or Canada, and just with a pocket knife and a hatchet can make it. You know, there are some guys like that. No, 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 Paul wasn't like that. Paul was a scholar. And he was one that in the midst of all of that stuff, he learned to be content. It was a process, and it took him through some really challenging moments. And yet he still had much to learn about becoming content because in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, at near the end of his life, we're told that three times, not once or twice, but three times, he besought the Lord that this thorn in the flesh would be removed from him. But get this, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so no matter what challenges the Iraqis, our own set of circumstances, or Paul's intense persecution and enduring moments, my grace, God says, is sufficient not only for him, but for you and I, as well as for those in Iraq. And so here's the focus, and I suppose it ties into what we will talk about this afternoon. But here's the focus. The focus is not the circumstances. The focus is not what Paul endured. The focus is the one who enabled 
Paul to endure. Our eyes must not be on the circumstances, but it must be on him whose grace is sufficient. Now, I recently read that in a sermon that Jonathan Edwards had delivered, Jonathan Edwards, many conclude, was probably the most brilliant man America has ever produced. He is the he was the catalyst for the great awakening, first awakening. I guess it was like 1720s or something like that. I don't have his dates clear in mind. But his very first sermon, and by the way, he became, he, he was the pastor uh, up in, now it's gone out of my mind, but the western part of Massachusetts in the Berkshire area. And he, I don't know how long he served there, 20, 30 years. And the revival breaks out in Massachusetts through his preaching and teaching ministry. And you know what happens to Edwards, right? His church dismisses him. His church kick him out. And he's forced, and he was an older man at that time, for, here is the man who's the most brilliant mind America has ever produced, who's written some of the finest theological explanations of God's word, who would become one of the presidents, a first, second president of Princeton University, and who was the catalyst for the great awakening, and his church gets rid of him. (laughs) And when he leaves, he becomes a missionary to the Indians in the western part of Massachusetts, and then from there goes to Princeton. When he was 18 years old, his very first message was on the goodness of God and the hope of eternal life. And his three points were really riveting. It's like, gee, I wish, why couldn't I think of this? You know? But his three points, his first point was, we have nothing to fear. We have only God to look to and to trust because number one, bad things will become good things in our lives. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord. They don't make the bad things good. They only mean God will take bad things and make good things happen as a result. Let me give you one illustration I just learned this morning that Mary Lou shared with me. As I told you last week, the best man in our wedding, one of my closest, closest friends, we lost contact and we reunited and it's like we never skipped a beat. Kevin Murphy who's like 6'4". He was one of my private bodyguards when I was asked to debate some rabbis in New Jersey. So I'm going with you, Gary. I'm standing right next to him. I said, okay, Kevin, yeah, I love you. He was the best man in my wedding, our wedding. And I love him like a brother. He's gone through the ringer. And I would have him here and let him tell you his own testimony. But recently he wrote, we saw him, and then he wrote us, And he said, I would like you to put on the prayer chain of your congregation. And I'd like you to be praying because my father-in-law was diagnosed with bone cancer. They're telling him he doesn't have a whole lot of time to live. And he's asking me how it is that I have no fear of death or dying. He's asking me how it is that I can find joy in the most difficult trying of circumstances. 
I want you to pray that God would give me clarity as I share with him my faith. I want you to pray that perhaps God would spare his life and maybe even heal him. There are other family members that are asking, how do I become a believer in Messiah like you? How do I come to know him like you know him? And he wanted help, prayer, support. So Mary Lou sent out that prayer request and we have been praying. This morning on the way to service, Mary Lou tells me that he wrote. And he said that his father-in-law had gone to his doctor. The doctor said, I want to do some further tests on you. Did the further tests. And then he compared the reports. And he said, you know, this first report, I don't think it's your report. I'm not sure where it came from, but whatever cancer was seen in this report, it's not here. You don't have any. You You just don't have any. Now, I've heard stories like that before, and I'm always skeptical. So I'm from Jersey, but I'm always skeptical. But when Kevin tells me, I said, this happened. Now, I don't know what happened, but I can tell you this. They're asking him, Kevin, I need to ask the Lord into my life. They're starting to say, look what God has done. Kevin Mann now has the opportunity not only to plant, but to harvest. And we pray that he will. The point is God will take bad things. And that was a bad report. And he'll make it good. Doesn't mean he's going to heal everybody. But whether he heals or not, that bad thing, we are told, God will work some good. It's like Joseph. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Whatever you're going through, Edwards would remind us, bad things in the hands of God become workers of good things for his purpose. So why are we concerned? Here's the second thing Edward said. Not only does he take bad things and make them good, but the good things he gives us can't be taken from us. So in, in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, 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 no condemnation for those who are Messiah Yeshua. Whatever good things he's given to you, you can't lose, he says. I, you know, I wish I could say this was my idea. You can't lose. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor principality, nor powers. The love of God, is that a good thing? Can't be taken from you. You are in the hands of God. No one will snatch you out of my Father's hand. So bad things will become good things. Good things will never be taken from you. And then his third point was, and the best of things is yet to come. And then he turned to Revelation chapter 21. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. So Genesis 1 opens with the heavens and the earth, closes with a new heavens and a new earth. Now, something about the new heavens and new earth, I'm not all that happy about. It says, there were no longer any seas. And that was a little disturbing. Until I read what Ray Stedman said about it many years ago. He said, seas are salt water bodies of water. And they are used to dispel the pollutants in our world. I don't know if he's right about that, but I think, I hope he is. 
so that the salt water content is used as a cleansing agent. In the new heavens and new earth, we won't need that cleansing agent because it's going to be all new and all pure as God is the king and ruling uh, presence. So, he said, that doesn't mean there might not be fresh bodies of water which are not seas or oceans, they're lakes. (laughs) So I said, oh, maybe there will be some big lakes, like the size of the Pacific, that we'll be able to sail. But my good friend, who is now with the Lord, who taught me how to sail, we were reading this passage on the boat one day, and he said, you know, one day we're not going to be able to sail anymore, so we better get it in now while we can. And I said, no, no, no. But he said, don't worry, Gary, we're going to sail the universe. Is going to sail through the heavens. He's doing that now. But here's the point. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Those in Iraq will reign with our Messiah. To be sure, there's much tears and sorrow. And we need to lift our brothers and sisters up that God would sustain them. And perhaps we need to do more than that. But we must not do any less than that. But we must not delude ourselves into thinking that that's their plight and we have none of our own. We have our own suffering that we go through as well, like Paul, who is called to suffer. The Lord suffered, not so that our suffering would be removed, but that our suffering might be like his. And thus... If our eyes are on him, his grace will be sufficient. Because the bad things will become good. The good things will never be taken from us. And the best things are yet to come. Our problem is we focus on the suffering. And not on the good and the best. And ultimately, what is that good and that best? It is him. It is the Lord. It is our Savior. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our grace. He is our riches. He is our glory. He is whatever it is you see as good. It is him who is all of that and more. And if our eyes are not on him, then indeed we will be swallowed up by our struggles. But if our eyes are on him, then we'll see more clearly than we've seen before. And our life will be a perfume and aroma of joy and life, even in the midst of our sorrows and pain. Let's pray. Our God and Father, and while I'm praying, if the ushers would come, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us this day. Indeed, there is so much suffering in our world, and much of it because of faith in you. You pronounced a blessing on those who are persecuted for your name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Father, may you help to bring to remembrance to your suffering children around the world the truth of that and of the great blessing that is in store 
for them. Our prayer, Father, is that you would deliver them. As David writes in Psalm 103, may you be their shield, as you have said to Abraham. May you be their shield in their exceedingly great reward. May you be their shadow that they might take refuge in. May you be their rock that you enable them to stand upon. That when the winds of trials blow, they would still remain standing because of your grace. And then, Father, the challenges that we face, challenges of financial duress, Challenges of lack of unemployment, challenges of rebellious children, challenges, Father, of physical maladies, challenges, Lord, of emotional disturbances and struggles, challenges of relational breakdowns. Father, we pray that your grace might be sufficient. We pray, Father, that our focus would be on you and not on our surroundings. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work mightily in our midst. And as a result of these truths, Father, you would help us to manifest your life before one another and before others. So, Lord, we are in need of you. For without you, we can do nothing. But with you, Father, the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. The promises you give become our hope. And the salvation you've provided becomes our life. May that be the focus of us moment by moment and day by day. And if anyone here does not know this, has not experienced you in this way, some may never have invited you into their lives. May they not delay and do that today. Some of us who have struggle and can't take our eyes off of the struggle and can't put our eyes on you. Father, might you help us to do that and finding that you are trustworthy and sure and that we can endure whatever the trials might be because you are there with us and alongside of us. You are Emmanuel, God, with us. So we bless you, Lord. We honor you and we praise you and we thank you. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.